What About Us, a podcast that discusses how policies affect rural Tennesseans. This is our second season, and all episodes are available on iTunes and Google Play. My name is Sandra Rice, and I have a guest today. Thank goodness, because when I do a podcast by myself, it's a lot of work. Dr. John Evans is a professor of biology at the University of South and my friend. Um, John, what do you do at the university? Well, Sandy, first of all, it's great to be here, and I'm glad to participate in your podcast. Um, I am a professor of biology, and I teach courses in ecology and in conservation, and I do research that is um, ecological in nature. I've done quite a bit of work looking at um, the fate of our forests and how they've been affected by land use activities, and some of that has been directed toward how land use has affected wetlands in our forests. Okay. And recently I published a paper with some colleagues that um, uh, focuses on that very topic. Okay. So today we're going to talk about Tennessee's water, um, the, integ- the ecological integrity of our lakes, rivers, streams, wetlands, and our policy for the basis of this discussion. We go back to 1972, and that's the Clean Water Clean Water Act. So this was the first and most significant federal environmental legislation um, developed to protect and maintain the integrity of the nation's water. An interesting side note was that it was initially vetoed by President Richard Nixon uh, and, and was overridden by Congress. Its goals were to eliminate the discharge of pollutants into the nation's waters. Uh, goals were to have zero water pollution, prohibit toxic discharge of toxic amounts of pollutants, to achieve water quality levels that were fishable and swimmable, and the timeline was to achieve these things in the 1980s. Agencies to implement the act were the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, and the Army Corps of uh, Engineers. Um, And this made a big difference in the quality of our our waterways. it was, uh, the Clean Water Act was very broad, uh, a little bit confusing, uh, convoluted decision-making process for projects. And in 2015, the Clean Water Rule was created to clarify water resource management and define the scope of federal water protection like streams and wetlands. John's going to add a little bit about this uh, process, but I'm just going to continue uh, with a little bit more recent history, and that candidate Donald Trump campaigned against all kinds of government regulations, regulations uh, were, were perceived by him and many others as being bad. And uh, um, he promised to repeal the Clean Water Rule, not the act, it's a law, uh, that would take congressional uh, intervention. Uh, but when um, Trump was elected, he got right uh, to doing what he promised calling the Clean Water Act, Clean Water Rule, a massive power grab by government on farmers, homeowners, land commissioners, and was stalling economic growth. And he repealed it in 2019. Just in this past January, he replaced it with what environmentalists call the Dirty Water Rule because it dramatically rolls back protections to the quality of our waters. Uh, We talked uh, a little bit about this uh, when Laura Newman talked about climate change. Um, so, um, John, add, add to this quick summary of this law and act and kind of how it came about, what it reflects as in regards to our values. Yeah. So, 
Back when the law was being considered for passage in the 1970s, coming into that point in time, the state of the country's water wasn't great. We, we had widespread pollution in many of our rivers. Drinking water was affected. I think there was general public concern at the time that we needed to do something. And there was bipartisan support for the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, a bunch of, a number of environmental laws at the time um, were deemed necessary by broad constituencies in this country to, to right sort of environmental wrongs that were, you know, that had accumulated over time. And so the, the Clean Water Act was passed, and, and it was quite effective in cleaning up rivers and cleaning up the Tennessee River, for example. You know, it, Chattanooga uh, was... Uh, uh, experienced some awful pollution in the Tennessee River that eventually, you know, was turned around and, and look what it's done in terms of its, you know, the benefit that it's provided that city. So and that was a the Clean Water Act had a great deal of of responsibility in in, in having that happen. Um, I think the thing that's been controversial with the Clean Water Act has been defining what the act says are the waters of the United States. So jurisdiction of this act isn't all water. Every drop of rain that, that falls from the sky is protected by this act. It, they had to define what is and what isn't, and they called this thing called WOTUS, Waters of the United States. Right, right. And, and there was a, a somewhat, as you pointed out, nebulous definition of that in the act. Um, it was somewhat defined by what's navigable and, um, and, and what is relevant when it comes to you know, the main waterways. But as you pull back from the main waterways into streams and tributaries, and then you go underground to groundwater, and you go to ponds that may or may not be connected to streams and springs. And, you know, there's all kinds of things that we think of as being water, water of the United States, water that's important to us, water that whose values we want to protect. And that's where you get into the gray zone as to, well, okay, is this act um, you know, going to apply here or not? And, and there's been pushback in society as to whether or not the act has jurisdiction over certain types of water uh, versus others. And, and this is what uh, sort of come to a head in the, in the early 2000s, where ponds, uh, natural ponds, ponds that sometimes have water in them, sometimes don't, that aren't necessarily navigable, mm -hmm. but are important wetland areas nonetheless that had been traditionally protected by the Clean Water Act for many, many years, were, were, were being um, called, on, um, you know, called out as being perhaps not applicable. Or over-regulated. Um, or or, or over-regulated. being just too fussy. Or, and, and part of the problem, too, was that a lot of these ponds that were natural look like things that we would create by digging a hole and it would fill up with water and, and that which is not the same thing as a pond a natural pond that had been there for many hundreds maybe a thousand years filling up with water and draining out every year and being important habitat to birds and salamanders and species the, the distinction isn't wasn't necessarily being made by the population the, the people um you know who who for whom this regulate these this law and the regulations that fall from this law um would um be affected by farmers and other folks, you know, they needed to be educated as to what was and what wasn't under the jurisdiction of this law. And that wasn't being clarified to them. And so court cases had to clarify it, and they did. And so the, the reason for the clean water rule that came 
down, uh, which is basically the regulations that implement the Clean Water Act uh, that was put forth by the Obama administration was that the Supreme Court asked for this clarification and Obama uh, convened a whole group of scientists from all across the country in all areas of wetland science and, and, and water science, biologists, hydrologists, geologists, environmental policy folks, and they got together and they, they looked at this question that the Supreme Court asked them to look at and said, okay, let's be more specific. Let's define this nexus between these different types of waters that are out there and, and their importance to our, our ecological integrity and our, our, our environmental health and, 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 and drinking water and all these things that we value. And they, and they did that. And it was, you know, it, was a, it was an impressive piece of work. And it was ready to be implemented uh, by the end of the Obama administration, by the next administration. Well, as you um, probably know, the very, one of the very first things that this next administration, the Trump administration, did was literally within the first week of, of their um, time in office, his time in office, was to suspend that rule. So in other words, not implement the regulations that were universally agreed upon by the body of scientists in this country that the Supreme Court asked for. And since then, he has rewritten these rules in a different direction. And he's, he's rolled back at least 95 you know, protections for the environment. Yes, he's rolling them back, but also, most importantly, they're not being enforced. I mean, you know, okay. when you, when you, one of the things that happened um, uh, with this current administration was this, um, this overhaul of the EPA. This, you know, there's the cutting of the funding, uh, sort of the the demotion of scientists. Um, there's a huge. There was a huge. Um, um, uh, so demoralization, I think, within the you know the the this very professional body of people that had been you know put together over the years to enforce these rules, there was in the sense that you know their work wasn't valuable anymore, and there, more significantly, there was a sense that they were going to have their science overridden by politics, and so a lot of the a lot of scientists within the EPA retired early, a lot of that collective expertise that we depend upon in society that, it, that evolved over time, we lost that because people looked elsewhere because they figured that their jobs weren't valued anymore, they could no longer be effective. And that was, you know, the, when your intent is not to enforce laws, one of the ways you do it is you take away the enforcers, right. you, take, you, know, you, you lessen the effectiveness of your police force, and the, you know, your laws aren't going to be enforced. And, and that, so that's what, a lot of what we've been seeing in the last four years or three years. Has it had an effect um, on the quality of water, air? I mean, I think, I think whenever you don't enforce rules, there are effects. And I think you know, the, the thing about you know, systems, you know, the Clean Water Act, did such a good job cleaning up rivers and streams and, you know, and, and preventing pollution from happening that to turn that around quickly, okay. it's not going to happen right away, but it's going to take, it's going to be one instance after another that's going to slowly move us back in a direction where our rivers and our streams are no longer in the, the, the have the kind of quality that we've come to expect. We can't swim in them anymore. We can't rely on, rely on them for drinking water. And so forth, and and it's a you know it's it's one of those things that's not going to happen overnight, but that's why we have rules and regulations is to keep that from happening. And again, if you if you change those rules or you don't enforce them, you're going to start to see this damage. Okay. Do you believe that corporations will go yippee and then just start being major polluters? 
Well, what's interesting is that, you know, for a lot of the major corporations, you know, they're not necessarily wanting whole scale change back to something that will allow them to do things uh, that are more environmentally detrimental, even though it might be in their, you know, their immediate financial interest to do that. What they've learned is that, you know, that it's, what's cost effective for them is to have something in place and to be able to know that it's there from one administration to another. So the, the, the people in this country expect there to be laws that and, and regulations that protect their, their water and their air. That's now a given in society. Everyone agrees from corporations across down you know, across the board and, and, and then people across the board, depending on, regardless of political party. That's understood. Those values now are entrenched in our society. So, so this idea that you would then take away that protection, you would think that that would be something a lot of corporations would say, yay. But the reality is they would much rather have consistency. In other words, if we're going to have these regulations in place and we're going to enforce them, let's do that and just consistently you know, uh, keep this going forward so we don't have to reinvest infrastructure you know, in a different direction to compete with someone else here who's, who's now able to pollute and doesn't have to invest, say some newcomer coming along. I've, had to, I've invested all of this and someone else comes along and doesn't have to do it under this new and this new, uh, new, new environment of deregulation, that's not fair. It's, an, it's a fairness thing from their standpoint. I mean, corporations are all about making money. And so it, it, as long as the playing field is, is, is kept the same and everyone has to abide by the same rules and that has, you know, and that has a, a, a long-term duration, then I think you're going you're gonna to find that generally corporations will support the, the status quo, the environmental regulations that are in place. And that's the irony of it. I mean, it's, it's generally it's good business sense to do this stuff. Do you think the public um, pushes back? I, th I think you're going to find absolutely the public pushes back because whenever you have the degradation of the environment, it's most likely going to be perceived in your own backyard. And it's going to be individual places where the water quality has 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 been um, lowered. You can't swim there anymore. You, the water, there's something about the drinking water that comes up where, you know, people are now concerned and why didn't you protect this? Why, why government? This is where, you know, you're going to come. Why aren't you protecting me, government? You know, well, that's when you realize that, oh, you know, it's regulations. They're not all that bad. Maybe you voted for a candidate who wanted to, you know, to, to, to deregulate, but you didn't recognize that 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 those regulations were the very things that were protecting those values that were so important to you. And then you maybe get the specifics lessons there that, hey, you know, they're not all that bad and that there is a connection between what we want and value in society and the regulations that we put in place to make sure that we get those things. And that's why we have laws. and That's why we have regulations. You know, and, and can you can you overregulate? Yeah, yeah, perhaps. Are we doing are we overregulating the environment? I don't think so. Okay. What about your students? What do they think about? Are they going to be, I mean, it's their future. Are they going to be big movers and shakers on pushing back and expecting regulations to keep their water safe, their environment I, safe? I mean, do you see that? Or are they, I you're think probably so. stirring them up, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think this, I think this new generation has grown up with an expectation of, of environmental quality that, you know, that you start to see it eroded, then I think they you know, they expect a higher standard. Mm -hmm. And I think they're willing to pay for that. And they're willing to, you know, see that their politicians that are, you know, that are out there representing them, um, you know, 
enforce those values or in, instill those values and laws that protect what it is that they expect. I mean, I think there's a, you know, the older generation have seen a, a wide variety of change. They've seen both, you know, uh, situations where our rivers were not clean and now that they are clean. Whereas this generation only knows it one only way. Only knows it yeah. that one way. Yeah. You know, I had um, some friends up uh, from Atlanta that bought their two kids in the summertime when we were going to go out to Lake Cheston, which is, is that a spring-fed or... It's a dammed up stream. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And they, um, the one little girl asked me, is it posted? Hmm. And I, I said, what? I didn't know what she meant. What did she mean? Posted. Um, well, I guess if, if... If it was polluted. Yeah, if it was polluted, yeah. Yeah, I said, I was just thinking up. of no swimming. She said, no, is it polluted? Mm. I don't know. I go swim, swim in it. And, you know, so, yeah, that's an example of the kids. We talked a little bit um, about science since we're talking about kids and, and that. Um, what were you telling me about, about science? Well... Do you remember... Science is good. Science is good. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one of the things about any environmental issue is that there is a core scientific sort of um, issue at stake there, right? So, so or, or a core scientific understanding that underlies that environmental controversy, whether it be climate change, whether it be clean water, clean air. You've you got to understand the science there or you're not going to effectively be able to address solutions. Mm-hmm. And understanding the science is something that requires people to be you know, educated at the level to which they can engage it effectively, whether you're a voter, or whether you're an activist, or whether you're just, you know, just a citizen. Um, and so it's really, really important that we don't neglect science education from that simple standpoint, is that we're not going to be able to address things now in the future unless we have people who can engage at a meaningful level. Because otherwise, if you don't, if if that objective understanding of the issue isn't there, then it's emotions. Not that emotions aren't going to play a role there Mm -hmm. in subjectivity. That's that's part of who we are, too. You know, we're going to bring our, you know, we're going to bring that to the table. But ultimately, these solutions require that scientific objective understanding, or we really aren't going to be able Mm -hmm. to be Mm -hmm. able to have a public discourse. Mm And I, you know, I worry about science education in the society. I worry about the politicalization of science. Um, you see that happening, and, and that's that's really troubling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how does how can science? How does science? How should science affect our governmental policies? Yeah, so let me give you a specific example of the project that I've worked on here in this state, which is looking at the importance of temporary isolated natural ponds that um, you know that are important ecologically here on the Cumberland Plateau and elsewhere. Um, these are misunderstood bodies of water that um, you know that, that are in that gray zone we were talking about with regard to the Clean Water Act, the waters of the United States. And so, yeah, and and partly because they aren't navigable waters, but they have this important connection to, you know, the the broader waters of the United States, the streams and the rivers, the groundwater, the things that we, you know, that we say are um, important to um, and and need to be protected by this law. Um, the, The Clean Water Rule under the Obama administration set out very specific guidelines as to which of these 
isolated wetlands would um, fall under the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act. And in order to fall under the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act, there had to be a scientific study that showed their value to society. They had to show that they played an important role, and they had to be identified. They, you know, these ephemeral ponds, they go under the radar screen. They don't, they're, not, they're not apparent to you and I, and, and they're often, as I said before, early, very easily confused with things that we create, like farm ponds or cow ponds. So you know, they're, they're, not, they're not the big, glorious rivers and lakes and streams and things that we think of when we think of water. Um, waters of the United States, but they're still nonetheless extremely important to this ecological integrity you were talking about. So um, we did this study knowing that the Obama uh, rule had made very clear what needed to be done in order for a set of wetlands like these isolated wetlands on the plateau, um, in order for them to have protection under the Clean Water Act, they needed to be mapped, and so we mapped them. And we, had a, we did this comprehensive study across the plateau. We looked at aerial imagery, and we found where they were, and we identified um, you know, their existence. And, and collectively, then, we had a, um, um, an understanding as to what constituted this, you know, this wetland function as manifest by these individual ponds on the plateau. And we also, in this paper, made it very clear why they were important biologically, hydrologically, and so forth, um, as was, again, required by the clean, the, the clean water rule in order for them to be under consideration. Basically, we had positioned this wet, these wetlands, which were very important, but were not up until now being protected. We positioned them to now have protection by the Clean Water Act. And what was unfortunate was when, you know, the, and, 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 and again, if you remember, the, the Obama rule was really just about to be implemented and then the change in administration and this rollback and the suspension of the rule meant that these ponds, these, these ephemeral wetlands that are so important as delineated by our research, got no protection whatsoever by the federal government. And what's unfortunate is that this research, which was done at the University of South by myself and colleagues, um, was, was ignored by our own congressman who was on you know, prior to, who was during the Obama administration when the, the, when the clean water rule was being under consideration, he was holding hearings fighting against it. Mm -hmm. Well, in his own district, we were science, this un, important underpinning of policy um, was being promulgated by, his, by academic institutions in his own district that he was ignoring. And that's really unfortunate. And that's a disconnect that should never happen. You know, a good representative, a good, a good um, someone who's representing you in government ought to be weighing all the best evidence and then having a hearing that sort of allowed all this to be weighed and, 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 and then decisions made appropriately. Instead, this was ignored. It was all really about the non-science, the, the emotions, the extreme, well, politics. the politics. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and it's nothing, nothing wrong with politics. But when it comes to environmental issues, there needs to be, as I said before, that scientific objective underpinning or you're basically not doing justice to the issue. So, John, let's talk about um, Tennessee. Um, do we have a water act? We have a lot of water. You know, I was telling you earlier, you know this, but I'm from Illinois. Um, we, have a, we don't have a lot of water there. So I'm amazed that just right down the road, there's a big lake. So what about Tennessee? Do we have a Clean Water Act? We do. The state has its own Clean Water Act. And not every state has as 
an effective Clean Water Act at the state level as Tennessee does. And okay. I think that the Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation does a very good job of implementing this act. And so that's good. That's good news for us because, you know, it's nice to have protection at both the state and the federal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the more protection for our water values, the better. Okay, good. And, you know, I do a lot of um, podcasts on health and we don't do so well there. So it's good to see that we're yeah. we're up there on top of, of something. We have a lot of dams in Tennessee. We do. It's kind of, of a, little, a, yeah. a little aside here. What you know? How do those affect our waterways? Well, you know, we. What's interesting about Tennessee is we we have very few natural lakes, like Radnor Lake or what is it? There's like yeah, one, yeah, there's, there's like mm-hmm. one or two places where there's a you know an event like a like a um, um, you know where. A, uh, uh, oxbow on a river it got cut off when a river got straightened out, you know, as rivers do over time, that creates its own sort of body of water. Or uh, earthquake or some sort of shifting of the land isolates water that was once free-flowing. But generally, you know, we, we're, we're south of the area of glaciation, so we, didn't, we don't have all the lakes that, you know, that they have up there in the north where, they're, where the glaciers scoured out all these holes and filled up with water. So most of our water is in swamps, it's in it's in marshes, it's in it's in rivers and streams, and and uh, and so, but people like bodies of water that don't move, right? They like reservoirs, and we need reservoirs if we're going to have hydroelectric power. And so when TVA, when the when rural electrification occurred back in the 1940s, you know that was a, a cheap source of power was mm-hmm. to dam up these rivers. And we have a lot, we had a lot of rivers. The Tennessee River system is extensive in all of its tributaries. And so we dammed up lots and lots of rivers. And in doing that, you know, we, we had a tremendous effect on the aquatic environment of the state. All the species that depended on that free-flowing water Species like mussels, for example, which you know live in um, and, and tributaries of rivers that you know they got flooded that required there to be you know the, these riffles and these these um, shoals. You know, mussel shoals is, is mm-hmm. named after not you know, not mussels on people, <laughs> but actually these <laughs> organisms, right, that need these shoals and of this water flowing over these rocks in order to sustain their populations. And, 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 and larval um, mussels uh, cling onto the, the gills of fish that are free-flowing along rivers, and that's how mussels move from one habitat to another. And when you change the ability of species to move along these river systems by putting up dams, you have a tremendous effect on the, the aquatic environment. Uh, a, a stagnant body of water is very different than a free-flowing body of water. Body of water. And of course, you know, a barrier to movement is something that physically species have a hard time with. And so we, you know, we've dammed up much of the, you know, much of the, the river system in Tennessee and changed that aquatic environment. You know, the, one of the first tests of the Endangered Species Act, you know, was centered around the Little Tennessee River. And, um, and you know, that, you know that, that's uh, sort of a case in point where, you know, we we lost this. We potentially lost. We're going to lose the species there because of the the changing of the um, the river system with dams. So even though the water flows over the dam, the fish on that can't don't necessarily go with that flowing. Well, the you know the waters don't flow over the dams. They actually the water actually goes, goes through, through, through and the it goes through these turbines, right? And the turbines okay. get spun. And there's over there are bypasses you can put in place in some places in the country, like where you have. 
you actually actively have to, by law, allow like the salmon to be able to continue their movement in the Pacific Northwest. There are ways you can bypass it, but a lot of those kinds of uh, effective bypasses to these dams to allow f- fish migration weren't put in place in some of, in the dam systems of the TVA, mm-hmm. and so you know you basically just fundamentally stop that migration. Okay. Um, I think I think it's in England where they're trying to deconstruct some dams that are no longer. They are in this country too. Okay. We're starting to see that happening, and we're, you know, where you just don't need them anymore. Or and eventually, you know, it's like everything, like a nuclear power plant, is no different. Eventually, it no longer can function. A dam no longer can function either as a place effectively to generate electricity because what happens over time when you just like, you know, whenever you. Whenever you stop water from flowing, the sediments that are suspended in that water fall out. And so what's happening behind these dams is you're basically silting up over time to the point where that dam uh, is no longer effective. Okay. And you can't, like, stop the the river and clean out behind the dam. Although, actually, that has been done. It's very, very expensive. And so often what happens is you just abandon the dam or you you re-liberate the river. Um, do you do you know of any dams in Tennessee that are no longer in use or there, I don't I can't give you the specific names of them but there are examples of small ones that are easily decommissioned you know that are that are not um, major dams uh, okay. it's the major dams that are really hard to you know to decommission it's a lot of work it's expensive and and probably that if there's any dams are not being taken out I'm not sure that currently have a lot of money for infrastructure and in fact in fact I think there's a, a project for a lock um, nearby that isn't getting any funding on the initial um, budget for, mm. for this year I, I read some articles um, about that what's sad is a lot of the land that was in the that was flooded by these reservoirs a lot of that land was condemned by the federal government back in the you know back in the 1940s and 50s when TVA sort of set up this system and you know that land um you know, people had no choice. I mean, they had to move out, and then the, the water got flooded. And then, you know, people adjacent to the reservoirs, so there was a lot of development in around that because the property values were greatly enhanced by that water being there. And there was a there was a quite a bit of inequity in terms of, you know, you know, private land values and mm-hmm. you know and sense of place and that sort of thing. Well, I think a lot of people um, more toward the east. Um, I guess where the river runs, but um, we're trying to farm on that land, and they were really plagued by floods, you know. So the so they couldn't really farm either, so they were um, displaced. But nobody likes that uh, when the dam was built and uh, had to be relocated and and you know leave, even though their farm was um, not very productive and they were struggling financially. You know, they still didn't want to move, and and the, and then the reservoir was built. So. Hmm. Yeah, typically, though, a lot of the floodplains are some of the most agriculturally productive areas. Well, not when they're flooded. <laughs> well, but no, typically, though, you know, if... A little bit higher up. But yeah, a little higher up. probably more expensive land that they... Yeah, I mean, I mean it's the regular flooding along rivers that allows the nutrients to be continually replenished. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes these areas so fertile. And, you know, a lot of our... Some of the best farmland in Tennessee is underneath reservoirs. Okay. All right. Well, too bad. Yeah. All gone. <laughs> and, and habitat, too. You think about it. I mean, that was a pretty special habitat. You know, the, those river corridors, um, you know, that, that basically are in, in, under these reservoirs, 
they don't exist anymore. The, the natural habitat. We, we tend to think when we look out at these reservoirs that they've always been there, you know, mm-hmm. but because mm-hmm. they've been there for a long, long time. But mm-hmm. that, you know, the, that land uh, behind those dams was not water. It was not covered with water. It was covered with forest. Mm-hmm. And, then, you know, it had its own unique set of uh, species that were associated with it that are no longer there. A lot of them uh, archaeological um, sites were present along those rivers as well. They got flooded, and uh, you know we didn't have the, you know we didn't have the expertise or in the in the the extensive understanding that we do now of mm-hmm. the value that these historic and prehistoric sites you know play. And we didn't have the laws in place necessarily to also to see that they got, um, you know, recognized for what they were mm-hmm. and their value. Well, we've talked a lot about water. Um, and so I like to do a little action plan um, so that uh, people that have listened to the podcast and are interested in some of the things that we've been talking about can take it a little bit step further. And I think the biggest thing um, that kind of stands out to me as far as an action plan has to do with science and not being afraid of it, not feeling like you're too old to understand it, to not bypass news items and discussions about science. What do you think the best way to catch up with it if you've kind of been... I, I don't know. We said the we said different agencies try to kind of hoodwink the public um, by making them believe things that maybe don't have a good basis or political or for their own special interests. How can we kind of prevent that? Well, I think it's most important that you're aware of what's happening in your immediate community when it comes to water issues and that you if there are concerns that you have or others have about you know what's happening to water whether it be groundwater whether it be your lakes or streams did you understand the issues that are at play and the science that's behind it and there are there are people um, at universities and at the, the state government Tennessee um, Environment Conservation Environment and conservation that can help you to understand what those issues are, and then it's important that you take the next step and do something. You know, mm-hmm. where that something is depends on the issue at play. So if it's if it's you want to see a state law enforced or state regulation enforced, you know, connect to the appropriate folks. Maybe it's a local issue. Maybe it's a zoning issue. That you know that that's, that really is at, at issue there. Um, and maybe it's something at the federal level. You have to figure out, you know, where the jurisdiction is that's, you know, that's relevant to the concern that you have. And then it's important that you, you know, you let your voice be heard. Mm-hmm. And that whether whether that's at a hearing, whether that's a writing or, or visiting the offices of the folks that are who are entrusted with um, implementing the regulations that you're hoping, you know, should be. Uh, being put into place to you know, protect those values. Um, and the key thing is to, you know, to engage mm-hmm. and engage in an informed way. It's not helpful if, you, if you're doing it in an uninformed way. It can actually be counterproductive because that's where you can get taken advantage of by those folks out there who want to use or misuse science in a way to mislead the public. Or ignore science. Or ignore science. But, but even more you know, um, nefariously, I would say, is if you misuse science. And we see that happening, where science can be misused to justify economic agendas. Uh, that was the case with the, 
with the conversion of, of hardwood forests on the plateau to pine plantations. There were, there were state officials and there were industry folks who were misusing science to justify this unsustainable forestry practice that had huge consequences to the forest, the biodiversity, and these, uh, these, um, these ephemeral ponds we've just been talking about. Okay, so they said, so, so talk more about that because I think this happened in our neighboring county. Yeah. The and, deforestation and right, in the jobs. Mm-hmm. I think that's an impetus for a lot of... Uh, change it'll provide jobs right well well what, jobs what, are good jobs are good and when you don't when you don't uh, when you engage in an economic activity such as we were talking about here where you know these large um, paper companies and bought up large tracts of land and converted the native forest to pine plantations and um, in that process they did not employ local people in the um, you know, that economic enterprise and, and but there was an economic cost to the local people in terms of groundwater they used these herbicides that got into the groundwater and uh, had a negative effect on mm-hmm. on folks that depended on that groundwater for drinking um, their the logging trucks um, had impacts on the roads and impacts on school buses and so there were these costs but there were very few benefits in fact the long-term ecological costs, of this conversion of our native forests and all the rich biodiversity that was inherent in that and in, in, in the values that people benefited, whether it be hunting or whether it be um, you know, the, 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 long, the long-term economic benefit of the, of the hardwood products that come from these forests, all that you know, was lost when you convert this to a temporary, um, um, essentially a agroforestry kind of uh, enterprise that didn't have um, a, a, a long period of time in which it was engaged in these these timber companies left and and, and then left any jobs and left yeah, and did never really employed gone. never really employed too many folks okay. in the first place and but but you know left the left the condition of the landscape you know that much um, devalued because it, you know there was only you lost the values that were inherent in the forest and now you're stuck with these abandoned pine plantations. And, you know, the, the landscape is, you know, that much less valuable to the people who live there as a result. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think, um, I think uh, people can learn about science from their kids and grandkids. If you've got a great schooler that's got homework, look at that science book. Yeah. You know, I, just, I just love to go back and see what, oh, I knew that. Of course, I'm a nurse, so I'm kind of a, we have a bit strong science base, you know as well on the human body but and engaging um you know certainly engaging um we're in election year coming up um unfortunately a lot of folks don't visit us in rural tennessee but if you catch somebody going by a senate candidate we're trying to replace um uh, senator lamar alexander's seat and we have all uh uh, congressmen uh they're re-elected every two years they should be uh, passing through and ask them about um, their commitment uh, to the environment. Um, and also um, kind of on, on the Internet, um, uh, I looked up a couple organizations that there's actually River Cleanup, keep the Tennessee River Beautiful.org, and Hands on Nashville, H-O-N.org, uh, uh, that actually go and clean, clean up the rivers uh, if you have the, the wherewithal to, to do that. Um, and that'll be coming up more and more as the spring and summer approaches. 
But I noticed the TennesseeRiverkeeper.org as an excellent website. There's a membership um, uh, form that you can be alerted about news items. You can also take actions like reporting polluters or reporting, um, you know, if you see a, a river or stream or a pond um, and you wonder if it's being misused or polluted, uh, there's a, a reporting mechanism for that. It just looked like they had a lot of things uh, of interest. Uh, protects the Tennessee and the Cumberland um, rivers. Um, can you think of anything else? Well, I think we just want to point back to what you're saying about contacting your congressmen mm-hmm. and senators. I, mean, I think, you know, what you're going to hear is from any congressman or senator, no matter what their voting record is, okay. is that they're going to say they're for a clean environment, that they're, they support mm-hmm. the environment, because that is what the public expects. The devil's in the details, right? Mm-hmm. What's their voting record? Did they vote against... You know, um, you know, this or that um, amendment to a law that would have weakened environmental regulations. Did they did they support the kinds of things that these organizations, you know, may be lobbying for? I mean, what what is it that they're actually doing? Not so much what they're saying, but what are they doing in terms of their track record as legislators? And that requires some, you know, a little bit of a deep dive and you know, a little bit of a, you know, of a of a of a of a more comprehensive understanding to really get a sense of whether or not they're representing your values that, you know, if, if you really do care about the environment. But it's important because it's so easy for them just to give you platitudes and just right. to say because that's because again it's not they're not going to tell you oh I don't support the environment no one yeah. is going to do that no <laughs> one and maybe once upon a time they would have but not anymore. <laughs> you're you're exactly right and that's where we talk a lot about you know critical critical thinking skills to to Absolutely. go a, a little bit um, uh, deeper and there are ways to to find out what their voting record. You know, yeah. is and, these, issue. and that's what these organizations are really good at. Because they do. And another one is um, the Sierra Club. I mm-hmm, think is mm-hmm. a, at the national level, the Natural Resource Defense Council. Um, you know, you've got um, you know you got you've got the Environmental Defense Fund. Um, you know, there's a lot of organizations at the at the national, international level, as well as at the local, level, like the River Keepers. That you can go to, who's who really are you know got the finger on the pulse of the, this this detail that I'm talking about, and and it'll 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 help you to you know be better informed as an individual, as a voter, and as a concerned citizen. And they want to help you. Yeah. And they will make it easy for you to take action. Absolutely. Um, I haven't explored these as much, but I always refer to the Tennessee Justice Center, and they will send you emails. They will let you know the issues. I'm sure these groups do it to click here, say this, write this, you know, and give you all kinds of guidelines. So it's, it's, it is a deep dive. You have to be interested in it, but these organizations help you so that the dive is not as yeah. time-consuming, That's I right. guess. That's right. And, and with, the, with the web, so much is on the web now in terms of resources, just a couple of clicks away, mm-hmm. and, and they'll help you find it, but you can find it as well. Mm-hmm. It just makes it so much more easy for citizens who are concerned about issues to get informed pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you just have to do it. And you can have the, the kids help you with the uh, websites, too. Okay, i just been waiting to say this. I think we're finished. We're going to wrap it up. I've been waiting to say this since the beginning. <laughs> Everyone lives downstream. Absolutely. Thanks <laughs> for <we're> listening <laughs> to What About Us. Bye-bye. And thank you so much, John, for doing this. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.